Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith and review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Let's begin in prayer. If you could please stand. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please welcome back Brendan McGuire. Thanks. Alrighty, so, uh, as we head into our, our second talk here on the history of the papacy, I have to um, acknowledge that our God would not be as good a God as He is if he didn't allow us frequent opportunities for humility. Now, it was pointed out to me uh, after my talk last time that I made an error of Bill Buckner proportions uh, in my last talk. I don't know if anybody got that, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> go, go home and look up highlights of the 1986 World Series. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> so, um, but uh, no, it was point, I, I made a slip of the lip last time. I referred to Pope Stephen II as though he existed in the 6th century, and that was a mistake. Of course, the, the saint, the saintly bishop who baptized Clovis was, of course, the, the famous Saint Remigius, uh, who baptized the, the forefather of the Merovingians at the cathedral at Reims. And this is the, the famous miraculous event where the ampulla of oil was brought down from heaven and all of that. Uh, so I, I apologize for that mistake. That, that was, of course, a slip of the lip, a uh, slip of the mind, and uh, it, was, it was entirely my mistake. So I have to acknowledge that on the record before you all. Uh, Anyway, uh, moving on, as, as we move in to consider the apex of papal authority, the zenith of papal authority within Western Europe, there are a few things that we have to, to conceive of first. Look at it this way. The Middle Ages are often defined by historians in terms of what they are not. The Middle Ages are often defined negatively. In fact, that's, that, that's the original definition of the Middle Ages. That's how the concept of the Middle Ages was first born in the early modern period. The Middle Ages were defined negatively as the age when you did not have certain things, when you did not have the Roman Empire, when you did not have the kind of erudition and learning that were fostered by the Roman Empire, when you did not have the kind of cultural flourishing that took place in the era of the Roman Empire, and that once again took place in the era of the Renaissance. Right? So the Middle Ages was frequently defined in cultural terms and frequently defined negatively, pejoratively, in cultural terms. It was defined you know, as the era in which you had a, a kind of a, um, really a, a blank space culturally, right? Now, th there's a problem with that conception of the Middle Ages. That the problem is when you define an era negatively, when you define an era by what it is not, and certainly it's, it's fair to say the Middle Ages is not the era in which you have the greatest flourishing of Greco-Roman culture the way you did in the classical period, or to a certain extent the way you did in the era of humanism, all right? Nevertheless, what you miss when you define an era in terms of what it's not, is you actually miss what it is. Right? And that's frequently the case with the Middle Ages. People miss what the Middle Ages really were. 
right? And the fact of the matter is, if, if we're looking for a way to define the medieval West in positive terms, to define the medieval West in virtue of what it is rather than what it is not, one of the institutions that we can look at as the, the quintessential representative of what the Middle Ages are in the West is the papacy. Right? The medieval period is that period in which the papacy exercised directive, authoritative power within the Western church, within Western society at large. The Middle Ages is that period in which the pope was able to direct all of Christendom, all of Christendom, both religious and lay. Right? Now, did that situation exist perfectly at all times? No. That was a situation that prevailed imperfectly only at the absolute zenith of papal authority. Right? It took the popes many centuries to fight for that through centuries of forward-thinking, directive, authoritative work to establish the papal office as that institution which could authoritatively direct the politics of Europe, not as an end in and of itself, right? and this is a key point, not as an end in and of itself, but as a way of ensuring the spiritual and religious health of the church, the spiritual and religious health of the body of Christ, the doctrinal purity, the purity of worship, the purity of, of religious practice of the Western Church. This was always the paramount concern of the medieval popes, and this is what drove them and motivated them to, at all times, seek to exercise a directive and authoritative influence over events. All right. So what, what we see right, is that in the early part of the Middle Ages, the, the papacy is going to run into obstacles that are presented by the Byzantine emperors. Why? Here we have basically a, a contrast that can be drawn between the way in which the Byzantine emperors tended to view the papacy and the way in which other Western tribes and peoples tended to view the papacy. Western tribes and peoples who were newly converted to Orthodox Christianity in the early Middle Ages, peoples like the Franks, the Angles, the Saxons, peoples like the Visigoths, right? These various peoples of the West tended to view the papacy as a divinely established institution, exercising authority that was bestowed upon it by Christ. Remember, the papacy was the institution that brought Christianity to these various peoples, to the Celts, to the Jutes, to the Scandinavians. Right? On the other hand, the Byzantine emperors, of course, always tended to view the Petrine role in a historically conditioned way. They tended to view the Petrine role through the lens of centuries of practice under the Christian emperors of late antiquity. Right? You see this conflict, this conflict between two views of the papacy, especially come to the fore in the seventh century, in the reigns of the Byzantine emperors Heraclius and Constans II. Look at it this way. What we're going to see is a decisive break in the seventh and eighth centuries between the Byzantine emperors and the papacy. Now, when I say a decisive break, what I do not mean is necessarily a schism in an ecclesiastical sense. Right? What I do mean is we're going to see the papacy gradually be able to liberate itself from the menace posed by Byzantine emperors who sought to terrorize and control the institution for their own ends. Right? You see this during the reign of the, the great emperor Heraclius. Right? Heraclius was one of, uh, of course, the most colorful and interesting Byzantine emperors in history. His reign was 610 to 641. Right? Heraclius' reign was a time of incredible turmoil, incredible turmoil for the Byzantine Empire. Right? Between 610 and 630, Heraclius was at war with Persia. Right? Initially, the Sassanid Persians almost destroyed all of Byzantium. They marched almost all the way to Constantinople. 
Right, the very existence of the Christian Empire in the East was at stake. Heraclius, of course, battled back. He invaded the heart of Persian territory. He made it all the way down between the Tigris and the Euphrates, all the way down to the city of Tesaphon, the ancient capital of the Sassanid Empire. Heraclius' victory over the Persians brought a security to the Byzantine Empire that was all too temporary, that was all too short-lived. Why? Because, of course, in 632, the prophet Muhammad in faraway Arabia died, and his first successor, the first of the Khulafal Rashidun, the first of the rightly guided successors of Muhammad, Abu Bakr, launched an invasion of both Sassanid Persia and Byzantium, which would have disastrous consequences for both empires. Now, look at it this way. Heraclius is concerned with his eastern provinces. He's concerned with Egypt and Syria. These are the wealthiest, most populous, most civilized areas of the Mediterranean world. Egypt and Syria, and the most deeply Christian areas, some of the most deeply Christian areas of the Mediterranean world. All right? So Heraclius' concern is with the loyalty of those provinces. Now the reason why Heraclius is concerned with the loyalty of those provinces in the face of Persian armies and then Islamic armies is because of the old religious dispute over monophysitism that we talked about last time. All right? So what Heraclius is going to try to do is he's going to try to forge a compromise with the Monophysites. You have to remember, the Monophysite heresy really has its genesis in the Syriac tradition, the Syriac Christological tradition, which other scholars could certainly talk a lot more about than I could. But we know for a fact that Monophysitism was most popular in Syria, Egypt, and Palestine. All right? So with concern for these regions, um, we see the Emperor Heraclius propose a Christological compromise. He says, look, I'm the emperor. Traditionally, I'm the guardian of the Christian faith because I'm the emperor, right? Whether, whether the Petrine office should be seen as the guardian of the Christian faith, well, that's kind of up for grabs. In some sense, bishops are important and priests are important, but whatever, I'm the emperor. So I'm the guardian of Orthodox Christianity. I'm the guardian of the faith. And so in that role, Heraclius proposes this Christological compromise, which has it's gone down in history under the, the strange name monothelitism. Monothelitism was an awkward compromise which sought to placate Monophysite concerns. Remember, Monophysite Christians are concerned that the Christianity that was endorsed by the papacy and the Western Church, and generally speaking by most of the Byzantine emperors, was a Christianity that watered down the, divin the divinity of Christ. Right? That's what the Monophysites are concerned about, the divinity of Christ. And so they want to say Christ has one nature, not two. Christ is not human and divine. He's just divine, right? And then he kind of is human too, but he doesn't have a human nature, right? That's the concern. Now, what is proposed here by Heraclius, this, this awkward compromise of monothelitism, is basically this. Heraclius will say, okay, fine. Christ is human and he's divine, right? But he only has one will. Christ only has one will. Okay. Now, does that sound good to you guys? Does that sound good to say Christ only has one will? No. <laughs> people aren't certain. Some people say no. Yeah, no. This is something that's definitely going to be regarded as heretical by most of the Western church and by much of the Byzantine church as well. Right? And yet, Heraclius, being the Byzantine emperor, exercising this historic role 
as the, you know, the way he conceives of himself, right? the same way Eusebius conceived of Constantine, which is the protector of Orthodox Christianity. He says, no, monothelitism, this will be the compromise, this will settle everything. So he issues a document called the Ecthesis. Right. Ecthesis, which is Greek for ecthesis. Um, <laughs> no, it, it basically means something like expostulation or something like that, you know, but it's, yeah, there's no point in translating it. It's the ecthesis, right? And uh, what it does is it, it demands that all Christians in the empire adhere to monothelitism. Now remember, is the papacy in this period, theoretically speaking, still part of the Byzantine Empire? Yes, right? The popes are still Byzantine subjects in the 7th century. Rome, theoretically speaking, although, I mean, in practical terms, the ability of the Byzantine emperors to project power in the Italian peninsula is always up for grabs, right? It's always a dicey issue. But theoretically speaking, the pope is a Byzantine subject. Theoretically speaking, Italy is Byzantine in this period. So suddenly the pope finds himself commanded by his emperor to endorse monothelitism, right? The response of the Pope at the time was extremely ambiguous and hedging. Honorius I was the infamous Pope at the time, but he died in that year. He died in 638, and of course his successor, Pope Martin I, would have none of it. He would have absolutely none of this monothelitism nonsense. Right? Now, Heraclius had a lot on his plate without having to try to, to force this awkward theological compromise. Heraclius' armies were getting slaughtered in this period by the armies of al-Hulafa al-Rashidun, right? His armies were being slaughtered. The, the battle um, in, in Palestine of, at the Yarmouk River in 636 just destroyed Byzantine power in both Palestine and Syria. Egypt was not far behind. Egypt would fall into Islamic hands basically by 641, by the time that Heraclius died. By the time of his death, Heraclius was convinced that he had been cursed by God. Uh, he was so paranoid, so afraid that God was going to kill him, uh, that he refused to take a boat across the Bosporus to go back to Constantinople. Uh, he had them build a pontoon bridge so he could basically <laughs> kind of awkwardly walk to Constantinople. Uh, he was suffering from all kinds of fears and phobias, extreme depression. Uh, he was suffering from some kind of debilitating physical diseases by this point, and he died a bitterly disappointed man in 641. His successor as Byzantine emperor, was Constans II. Now, Constans II was a creative man. Constans II is credited by the scholarship of Warren Treadgold and Michael Hendy with some really creative uh, restructuring of the Byzantine Empire that allowed the empire to survive as a, a seriously reduced state a state that was reduced in size by more than 75%. You really have to restructure things if you're going to survive that way, if your revenue is reduced by more than 75%, which it was, because the wealthiest provinces were stripped away. So Constans II was a creative ruler, right? but he insisted, he insisted on this monothelitism being the doctrine of the empire. Right? So for the popes, they have a direct rival now. This is a one-to-one -one confrontation between the popes of Rome, who refuse to accept monothelitism, and the Byzantine emperors, who insist that in their role as protector of the church, this is what the doctrine will be. So this results in a standoff. Pope Martin I holds a synod in Rome in 649, in which he boldly condemns monothelitism and condemns by name many high-ranking figures within the empire, including the emperor 
and including various high-ranking Eastern clerics who have acquiesced to the doctrine of monothelitism. The Synod declared authoritatively that Christ has two wills. Now, does that mean Christ can disagree with himself, just to get that clear up? <laughs> no, no. What it means is that he has a complete human nature, as well as a divine nature. And a human nature has a will. That's part of what a human nature is. Right? So you can't say that Christ is fully divine and fully human unless he has two wills. Right? And this is the doctrine that Pope Martin I insists on. So what's going to happen to Martin I? It's interesting. In 653, Byzantine imperial troops marched from Ravenna to Rome. They arrested the Pope, dragged him back to Constantinople in chains for a show trial. The Pope of Rome was put on trial in Constantinople and convicted of high treason against the emperor, and he was exiled for the rest of his life to the Crimea, across the Black Sea, where he spent the rest of his days. Right? He wasn't the only one treated uh, in this fashion by this tyrannical Byzantine emperor. The great Orthodox saint, Maximus the Confessor, right, in 655, was exiled under the same types of charges by Constans II. Uh, Maximus the Confessor wrote some of the most eloquent defenses of papal authority that you'll find in the Byzantine tradition. Right? And so the, the writings of Maximus the Confessor are, are very, very interesting sets of writings for, for Catholics of the Byzantine tradition to explore. Right? But be that as it may, right, it, it looks like the papacy is, is kind of in a bind here in the 7th century. The 7th century papacy is in a bind because insofar as, as the papacy is still under the authority, under the jurisdiction of the Byzantine Empire, the popes are not going to be able to exercise the role that they see themselves exercising in an ideal situation. Right? You basically have two incompatible ideologies here. The papal ideology and the ideology of the Byzantine emperors are in no way compatible. In the meantime, there's a dramatic difference in the way that the, the rulers of England and Gaul and Spain and eventually Germany are going to view the papacy. Right? The, the kings and rulers of these various Germanic tribes especially in England and Gaul in the 7th century, make many pilgrimages to Rome. They make pilgrimages to Rome. They make donations to the papacy. Uh, they profess their obedience to the pope. They see the pope as Christ's vicar on earth. They see the pope as the successor of St. Peter. And that Petrine office right, brings with it in the West enormous cachet in a way that it doesn't for a Byzantine emperor. Right? So for the popes turning to the West, right, that's where they're going to be able to play the role that they see themselves as divinely called to play in the church and in the life of the Christian community. Right? So, what do the popes do? Well, they set their sights on missionary efforts in the West. Right? This is where the, the great conversion of Germany comes from. It was Pope Gregory II in the year 722 right, who sent a bishop to convert Germany, the, the famous St. Boniface was sent to Germany in 722. And you've all heard the story of the tree, right? Everybody knows the story of the tree, chopping down the tree. It's a great story, right? Boniface goes in and says, hey, guys, uh, what, are you, what are you doing? What, what are you doing? Oh, we're worshiping a tree. Oh, that's, that's dumb. How about I chop down the tree? Oh, go ahead, go ahead. We want you to chop down the tree because the tree god will kill you. Okay, cool, chop down the tree. Oh, wow, he didn't kill you. Okay, <laughs> talk to us, right? Boniface begins the establishment of the church in Germany, right? The establishment of the German church, of course, expands new horizons for the papacy. Because wherever you have papal evangelization taking place, you have not only the Gospels, not only the Gospels are being brought there, right? But the Latin language 
and the culture of literacy that necessarily comes with a church whose origins are Roman. Right? And so not only Christianity, but Roman culture and Roman identity are being brought across the Rhine by these papal missionaries in the 8th century. Right? The 8th century was a time also of uh, renewed disputes between the papacy and, and the Byzantine emperors. If it's not one thing, it's another between the papacy and the Byzantine emperors. By the 8th century, monothelitism is basically discredited and abandoned. Right? But new things are always cropping up. And so we see in the 8th century a new issue crops up to divide the papacy from the Byzantine emperors. And this is the issue of iconoclasm. You've all heard of Byzantine iconoclasm, right? This comes about in the reign of, of a man who would otherwise be considered one of the greatest Byzantine emperors in history, Leo III. Leo III was a man of immense talent and energy. Leo III successfully defended Constantinople from a, a spectacular siege by the Umayyad Arabs. You know, the Umayyads laid siege to Constantinople in 717, 718, uh, with over 125,000 men, with over 2,200 ships, right? And uh, Leo III saw to it, and of course, as, as Leo III himself would say, the Blessed Virgin Mary saw to it, right, that 80% of the Muslims died uh, who were in the land army, and of the ships, of the 2,200 Islamic ships that came to lay siege to Constantinople, uh, six of them made it back. Right? Of course, there's a reason for that, the famous Greek fire. Right? Despite the success of the siege, though, Leo III was convinced that God was punishing the empire for something. Continued pressure from the Muslims, continued Arab raids into Anatolia, caused Leo III to question whether maybe it was possible that God was trying to send him a message that something was wrong. Now, Leo III, among his other accomplishments, and this is kind of key to the psychology of the Emperor Leo III, Leo III, among his accomplishments, was a revision of Roman law. Now, it was a revision of Roman law that was based partly on kind of a literal reading of the Old Testament. Right? Now, if you read the Old Testament literally, you're going to run across a lot of things in there. You're going to run across very vigorous application of the death penalty for certain crimes, for certain types of immorality. And these things begin to get incorporated into Roman law. The death penalty, for the first time, is applied to homosexual acts for example, on the basis of a literal reading of the Old Testament. Right? But among other things, in a literal reading of the Old Testament, Leo III is going to come across what? He's going to come across prohibitions on paying honor to images. Right? And so Leo III begins to wonder, maybe this is what God is punishing us for. Maybe Christians should not pay homage to images. Right? Of course, images were a huge part of the Byzantine liturgical tradition and obviously still are. Right? In the year 726, Leo III inaugurated an empire-wide prohibition on religious images. Right? This prohibition was enshrined in imperial law. Later on, in the reign of Leo III's successors, it would be enshrined in conciliar decrees by church councils that were held under the, the leadership and guidance of the emperors. And it was made a matter of heresy to venerate icons. Of course, within the Byzantine Empire, this iconoclasm was ultimately doomed. It was doomed by the opposition of the monastic clergy and by pious citizens, for whom the monastic clergy always held the highest prestige. Right? In the West, of course, the popes would have none of it. The popes even told the Byzantine emperor, if you want to come here to the West and enforce a prohibition on religious images, we won't be accountable for the blood that will flow. All right? Blood indeed flowed in the East. The, the first imperial troops that were sent to tear down an icon of Christ were actually lynched by a, a mob of citizens of Constantinople, right? and they were hung up in the streets. 
so th this iconoclasm was extremely unpopular. But fortunately for the institution of the papacy, events in the middle of the 8th century would lead the papacy to be basically brought out from under the umbrella of Byzantine control. Right? In 751, in 751, the Byzantine exarch, now exarch is a term that the Byzantines use for basically the, the governor who was appointed to rule over Italy. The Byzantine exarch was expelled from Ravenna by the Lombards. Right? The, what this does is it creates an opportunity and a problem for the papacy. The opportunity is that now the papacy is free to take a more directive role in the West within the context of Italy and, of course, the rest of Western Europe. On the other hand, it creates a challenge, right? Because the papacy, especially in the middle of the 8th century, is in need of a military protector for obvious reasons, right? And that's the thing. The, the popes, of course, had a view of themselves as being supreme within the Christian oikumene, supreme within the Christian community, right? Nevertheless, they commanded no armies. They had very little coercive power at their disposal beyond the spiritual. So they needed a temporal protector who could guarantee the freedom of the papacy from harassment, whether by the Lombards or by Arab fleets that were beginning to be a headache in the Mediterranean, or even by Byzantine iconoclast emperors who wanted to force the prohibition on religious imagery in Italy. Right? So who do the popes turn to in the middle of the 8th century? Of course, they turn to the Carolingians. Right? Now this would be a decisive event. The alliance between the papacy and the Carolingian dynasty would be one that was, would be mutually beneficial and would have an, an enormous impact on the history of Europe. All right. You all know the circumstances. This is what we talked about at the end of the last lecture. This is the, the moment when uh, the popes decide, look, this is Pope Zachary and, of course, his successor, who is Stephen II. They decide, look, the, the man who should rule over the Franks should be the man who has the power to defend the Frankish realms from their enemies particularly the Muslims, but also the Vikings. Right? And so they decide to transfer the crown of the Franks from the Merovingian dynasty to a new dynasty, the dynasty of, of Pepin, the son of Charles Martel, right, who becomes the first king of the Carolingian line. Right? Now this, this decision has decisive ramifications for the subsequent history of Europe. First of, all, first of all, what it means is that the Carolingians owe their legitimacy to the papacy. And that is of significance that can hardly be exaggerated. Right? Second of all, what it means is that these grateful kings, in light of their uh, debt to the papacy, will now take a decisive role to protect the papacy from the Lombards, from Arab raiders, and from other threats to papal security. Right? It's going to be a mutually beneficial alliance. Now, what we're going to see, of course, is that the popes develop deeper ambitions for what their alliance with the Carolingians can yield. The popes seem to have in mind right, nothing less than the restoration of the Roman Empire in the West. Right? Now, we have to remember this. For residents of the Mediterranean world in this period, right, in the early Middle Ages, the Roman model was really the only model that people knew. A model of, of Christendom as a collection of nation-states or something like that, that was not a model that people could relate to, right? Jurisdictional authority was rightly exercised in the minds of Western elites by one emperor and one church. Right? One emperor and one church. So for the popes, ideally, what, what they would like to see is a restoration of a version of that Roman model in the West, right? 
in which the papacy can exercise directive, authoritative rule over doctrine, over practice, over the purity of, of the, the way in which Christianity was lived by people, right? over the conduct of these newly converted barbarians, etc. So, the alliance with the Carolingians affords the papacy this opportunity. Pepin's successor, of course, the famous Charlemagne, who reigns from 778 to 814. Charlemagne was a, a little bit lucky. We, we have to consider his accomplishments in light of historical accident. Um, do you guys know, why was it that the Carolingians never really succeeded in restoring a permanent kind of new Roman Empire, Roman Empire II, right? Why is it that they, they never succeeded in creating that? There's a reason, right? It had very little to do with outside pressure. It had very little to do with Viking raids or Arab fleets or anything like that. It had very little to do with the fact that they weren't literate because, of course, the church provided a literate class of men who could serve as administrators of the Carolingian realm. No, there's a reason why the Carolingians failed to create uh, you know, a revived Roman Empire in the West. And it was because they had a kind of a dynastic problem. The dynastic problem was this. Frankish kings traditionally were required to split their realms among all their sons. Now, the Merovingians took this to an extreme. The Merovingians had to divide their realms among their legitimate and illegitimate sons. Right? <laughs> And some of these guys were pretty prolific, so you have a lot of sons sometimes to divide up the, these realms. And what that creates is it creates a perpetual cycle of division and consolidation in the Frankish realms, where you, know, you have some king who succeeds over the course of many years and defeating all of his brothers and cousins and reuniting the ancestral realm, and then he dies, and his four legitimate sons, and he's 17 illegitimate sons, <laughs> all want a part of it, right? I'm exaggerating a little, right? But, but he ends up dividing it six different ways, and the cycle st of consolidation starts over again, right? The brothers all start fighting each other immediately upon the dad's death, right? And one of them consolidates everything, and then he dies, and the whole cycle starts over again. Charlemagne was lucky. He was lucky to inherit Pepin's realm intact, and the reason was that Charlemagne's brother had a religious vocation. He decided in 781 that he just wanted to go into a monastery, and that was that. Right. So Charlemagne was effectively able to inherit a unified realm and expand it through extremely, extremely successful conquests. Charlemagne, of course, conquered the, the Frankish march in northern Spain, waged successful war against the Muslims there. He conquered the, the Lombards in the north of Italy. Uh, he, of course, crossed the Rhine and through very, very difficult fighting over the course of decades, was able to conquer the Saxons and conquer much of Germany, right? And to actually create a sizable state in the West that was, that it included territories that had even never been incorporated into the Roman Empire before. It included all of Roman Gaul. It included Germany east of the Rhine, which had never really been part of the Roman Empire. It included northern Spain, the kind of, uh, you know, south of the Pyrenees, the extreme border territories there in the north of Spain. It included much of Italy, right? So Charlemagne builds himself a sizable state. Now, what did Charlemagne want to do with the state? What was his vision here? Basically, what, what he was desperately anxious to do was to create a viable bureaucratic administration that would be on par in its efficiency with a Roman-style administration. So he was very interested in encouraging literacy. Right? This gives rise to what we call the Carolingian Renaissance, where you have a revival of, of literacy and culture. In all of this, 
Charlemagne cooperated with the papacy and with church reformers and scholars who were appointed by the papacy you know, in, in cooperation with Charlemagne. The papacy was never far from Charlemagne's mind here. The papacy was conceived of in many ways as the, sh as the source of Charlemagne's authority to do this. Right? One practice that wasn't questioned, though, in the age of Charlemagne was the right of kings to appoint bishops. Right? This is something that wasn't really questioned at all during Carolingian times. Charlemagne appointed bishops, he appointed abbots, uh, he basically exercised, a, you know, shall we say, Byzantine-style control over the church administration in much of his realm, right? He functioned as a Roman emperor had often functioned, right? Ecclesiastical appointments, in effect, were his, right? This principle remains unquestioned for much of the early Middle Ages, right? Nevertheless, by the early, ninth, by the early 10th century, by the early 10th century, a movement was brewing in the Western Church which would call that right of kings into question. Right? So here's where we are then, by the time we get to the 9th and 10th centuries. Right? The papacy's alliance with the Carolingians has effectively freed it from the threat of being punished and terrorized and tyrannized by ambitious Byzantine emperors. Right? The pope's alliance with the Carolingians has given it an influence in the West that's unparalleled in the history of the institution. Right? However, right, due to the dynastic problems that I mentioned earlier, that Carolingian empire wouldn't be a stable or lasting thing. Right? Charlemagne passed the em empire down to his son, Louis the Pious. Louis the Pious had three sons who divided it among themselves and fought. They made the famous Treaty of Verdun in 843, dividing the empire up three ways. But that cycle of division and consolidation, once it sets in, there's really no stopping it. It spirals out of control. And the, so the grandsons of Charlemagne fight one another, make treaties, but then, of course, they die and split up their respective realms. And so the great-grandsons of Charlemagne fight with one another. By the time you get to the beginning of the 10th century, the various Carolingian lines are beginning to peter out. So by the time you get to the beginning of the 10th century, there is no Carolingian empire anymore. Simply by accident of inheritance customs, the empire has fallen apart. Right. And now this whole practice of lay appointment of bishops is seen as a serious problem. Right? It's seen as a problem that gives rise to a variety of abuses, particularly the abuse of simony. Right. Simony, of course, derives its name from the infamous Simon Magus in the Acts of the Apostles. Simon Magus who offered to pay the apostles money in order to be given the, the gifts of ordination. Right? So simony in church law refers to any payment of money for spiritual goods. Payment of money for church offices, of course, falls into an ambiguous category, doesn't it? Right? By the beginning of the 10th century, it had come to be the belief of, of many ecclesiastics right, that the abuse of simony was rampant in the Western church and that it was rampant precisely because the to of the toleration of lay appointment of bishops. Right? That lay kings and rulers and dukes being able to appoint bishops and abbots and other clerics was the root and cause of the prevalence of simony in the West. It's in response to this abuse that the movement would begin, which would launch the papacy to unprecedented heights of moral authority in the West. Right? Well, what would happen is this. Right? It started, the, the movement against simony 
and against uh, lay investiture of bishops starts out very, very humbly. In 909, the Duke of Aquitaine endowed a monastery. Right? He endowed a monastery in 909, and the monastery's name was Cluny. Now, Cluny, of course, would have very humble beginnings. It started out with a very humble kind of thatched roof church type structure there, Carolingian style, very, very humble little structure there in 909. It would be, it, the, the church there at Cluny would be succeeded in later centuries by grander and grander structures until in the 12th century you had the great Romanesque uh, Basilica of Cluny that was built there, a five-aisle basilica that rivaled St. Peter's in Rome. If you go to Cluny today, it's, it's very, very sad. You see the forlorn remnants of the great abbey church at Cluny. You can see one of the transept towers uh, that's still standing there, and you can kind of go stand in it. But to show you the, the size and the majesty of what Cluny once was, if you go there today, you can stand on kind of on one side of the town, and they have markers in the ground marking where the narthex of the church once was. And you look across the town, and the whole town kind of slopes in between. You see homes and businesses and boulangerie and everything like that. And then on the far side of the town, you see the transept tower, right? What once was the crossing of the church. Uh, I mean, the, the, the power and majesty of Cluny was absolutely immense at its height. But of course, the beginnings were very humble. What was unique about Cluny? What was unique about Cluny is that when it was founded, when it was endowed by the Duke of Aquitaine, he basically endowed this monastery and wrote a special charter for it. The charter specified that forever and ever, in perpetuum, Cluny would be free from lay control. No subsequent duke or any of his heirs could ever assert control over abatial elections or over any of the internal affairs of Cluny. Cluny would adhere to a pure reading of the Benedictine rule. Free from lay control, it would presumably be free from simony, free from the abuse of people paying money to lay officials in exchange for an ecclesiastical office. Right? Cluny flourished. Cluny was, uh, it basically developed and nourished a unique organizational principle within it. Right? And the principle was this. Every daughter house that would be founded by the monks of Cluny would remain obedient to the mother house. Unlike the traditional model of late antique Benedictine monasticism, in which each monastery was independent, the idea with Cluny was that the, the, the mother house, the, the abbot of Cluny at the center, would exercise abbatial authority over all the daughter houses. Right? And as this model of monasteries free from simony um, really picks up steam and it picks up a certain weight of moral authority in the West. More and more lay leaders are willing to endow these types of monasteries. More and more of these monasteries become affiliated with Cluny and part of the Cluniac network, right? Until by the time you get to the year 1100 or so, there are over 800 Cluniac monasteries in Western Europe. All of them are subject to the mother house. What that means is that the mother house of Cluny, whoever the abbot is of Cluny, is a man of immense power, a man of immense wealth and immense influence, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that he's corrupt. It simply means that he's a man of immense influence in Western Europe, right? Now, the, the moral authority of the Cluniac movement comes from the fact that it represents the liberation of the church from the world, the liberation of the church from lay control, from the stain of simony, and from the stain of clerical concubinage as well, 
the practice of lay abbots and, and lay, lay people holding ecclesiastical benefices and ecclesiastical incomes while maintaining a conjugal life with their spouse and things like that was seen also as a scandal, right? So for better or for worse, a celibate clergy right, that was free from lay control was what held the most moral cachet in 10th century and 11th century Europe. And so as the Cluniac organization grows in its power and in its prestige, it's going to come to influence the papacy itself. By the time you get to the middle of the 11th century and later in the 11th century, the Cluniac model, the, re the reforming power of the Cluniac model begins to touch the papacy itself. Right. Now, the, the pope who is often referred to, the, the 11th century pope who is often referred to as uh, the, the father of the high medieval papacy is Pope Gregory VII. Pope Gregory VII was a man who was deeply influenced by Cluny. He was deeply influenced by the model of a church free from lay control, liberated from the world. And so Pope Gregory VII, in the late 1070s, in 1078, he presided over a synod at the Lateran that, once and for all, authoritatively forbade lay appointment of bishops, and it forbade the common practice of lay people investing bishops or abbots with the symbols of their authority. Right? This was a practice that the German kings had arrogated to themselves from time immemorial. The practice of appointing bishops the way that Charlemagne had, handing them the staff, handing them the ring, handing them the mitre, handing them the symbols of their authority, symbolizing that the bishop's authority came from the king. Right? This is something that Pope Gregory VII sought to eradicate. Now what happens here is that this, this synod in 1078 kicks off a struggle that, that lasts from 1078 all the way down to 1122. Right? And this is the, the infamous controversy over investitures. It's called the investiture controversy or the lay investiture controversy. And this is a struggle that the popes would win. Right? Because of their battling against simony, what happens is these popes, as they're often referred to, the reforming popes, of the great Gregorian reform, named after Gregory VII, right? they have a moral authority which prevails over the assertion of rights by lay monarchs who resist them, right? particularly the German kings. And by waging this struggle, by waging this struggle successfully, the popes were able to raise the profile of the papacy as an institution to unprecedented heights, unprecedented heights. And that had immense consequences in the late 11th century. One of those consequences was the ability of popes to launch crusades. Right? This becomes extremely important at the end of the 11th century. Why is it important? It's, it's important because of events in the East. Right? Everybody knows that the Byzantine Empire stood as a bulwark in the East against Islamic incursion right, into Europe. Everybody knows that. What happens in the 11th century is that the Seljuk Turks present a grave, unprecedented threat to the survival of the Byzantine Empire. In 1071, the Seljuk Turks had defeated a Byzantine army at Manzikert in eastern Anatolia. Right? What this meant was that by 1080, all of Asia Minor, right, modern-day Turkey, if you will, it's called Turkey today for a reason, because there are Turks there. Right? By, 1080, by 1080, you could look out your window in Constantinople, you could look across the straits, and you could see Turks. Right? Now. The Byzantine Empire had a habit throughout its long history of always getting a capable emperor just when it needed one. And this happens, right? This happens. In 1081, there's a new Byzantine emperor 
Alexius I, right? Alexius I Comnenus. And Alexius I's accession to the Byzantine throne in 1081 fortuitously occurs right at this juncture as the popes, the successors of Gregory VII in the West, had, had been able to wage this struggle against investitures with a fair amount of success, right? The accession of, of Alexius at this point occurs providentially at this juncture because when Alexius wants to turn to the West for help against the Muslims, he has a place to turn. Right? The reason he's able to turn to the papacy in particular for help against the Turks at this juncture is because of the success that the popes had had by this point in raising the profile of the papacy, uh, in waging this battle for moral authority against the German kings. Right? So, of course, Alexius sends emissaries in the year 1095 to a papal council at Piacenza in Italy. The pope at this point was, of course, the famous Urban II, who had himself been a Cluniac monk. Right. These emissaries came from Constantinople. They begged the pope for assistance. And, of course, the pope responded in a way that even Alexius himself probably never envisioned. Because by the end of the 11th century, the popes wielded a moral authority over Europe that they had never wielded before, Right? And when this period comes to an end, they will never wield it again. Right? The popes at this point had an authority in Europe that no king had, that no emperor had, that no duke had, that no lay leader or other religious leader at all had ever exercised in the West in precisely this way before. Right? The pope, with no coercive power at his disposal, with no armies at his disposal, um, with no police at his disposal, was able to hold a council at Clermont in central France, and call the European martial class to arms, to call the knightly class of Europe to sacrifice their wealth, to impoverish themselves in a quest to save Byzantium from the Turks. Right. This is a fruit of decades of papal reform. The fact that the popes are in position to do this, right, the fact that Alexius contacts the popes and no one else in the West, this is a fruit of decades upon decades of papal reform. Right. So Urban II, of course, launches the First Crusade. And, and you know the many crusades that came after this. Eugenius III right, launches the Second Crusade in 1147, right, which is more ambiguously viewed by the emperor at the time, Manuel Comnenus. Later on, you see other crusades that have other consequences for the Byzantine Empire, which are not always very favorable. One of the things about crusades is once the popes launch them, they really can't control them remotely. And so crazy things sometimes happen. Right. But be that as it may, the, the crusade movement, the crusade movement is probably the greatest barometer of papal authority in the Middle Ages. When you see the crusade movement at its height, from its beginnings in 1095 until maybe the reign of Innocent III, what you're witnessing is the apex of papal authority and power. What you're witnessing is the period in Western history when the popes, when, when, you know, there was no king that could stand up against the pope and win, right? When the popes exercised a directive, authoritative role in the Western Church, when the popes were, the, were considered to be the leaders in rooting out abuses, in rooting out unworthy clerics, in encouraging literacy and a respect for proper, the proper worship of God, proper doctrine, proper behavior by Christian knights. This is the time when the church, having liberated itself from lay control, having liberated itself from the world, is now able to turn around to the world and advise the Christian martial class, the knightly class of the West, how to behave, how to behave towards women, how to behave towards non-combatants, how to behave towards villages, how to behave towards each other. 
Their instructions were <laughs> not always adhered to, obviously. Obviously, they're dealing with men who are not that far removed from barbarism, right? And yet, the popes were only able to exercise this role because of decades of successful reform. All right. Now, what we're going to see moving forward, what we're going to see is that as the kings of Europe, as the kings of Europe are able to aggrandize themselves at the expense of their vassals, the Pope's ability to exercise a directive authoritative role within Europe is going to enter a decline. The centralization of kingdoms in the 13th century is going to present profound challenges to the papacy as the papacy in the 13th and 14th centuries desperately tries to exercise the role that it always had exercised to great effect prior to that time. So that's, where we'll, that's what we'll talk about next time. Any questions? With that, we'll go to Q&A, and our usual rules apply. Don't ask two questions. If you take a breath, the question's too long. On the end of the sentence, you have to have a question mark, and don't try to take my microphone away from me. Uh, what's the importance of the donation of Constantine? Oh, it's, it's, it's tremendously important. The donation of Constantine is part of a larger compilation of forged documents from the 8th century called the Pseudo-Isidore. And uh, basically what it is is um, you have a bunch of um, literate clerics who want to put into legal form papal theory. Okay, so the theory, the ideology, right, is not forged, but the legal form into which it's placed in the pseudo-Isidore and in the donation of Constantine is forged. But basically, the idea is to, to create, ex post facto, a Roman law precedent for papal authority, the way the, the medieval popes, or the way this clerical elite wanted to see it. So, uh, so basically, the, the importance of the donation of Constantine, it's, it's not so much important uh, that in that the, the concepts that are involved there are, are false. What is sort of fictional about the donation of Constantine is the legal form into which it's placed. Basically, it, it's a rhetorical way of, of taking ideas that were current and putting them into a legal form that was much more ancient to give them a greater weight of authority, and then attributing it to Isidore of Seville, which is, um, you know, to give it, uh, obviously, great respectability in the medieval world. Uh, so basically, the, donation of, the thing about the donation of Constantine that makes it important, though, is the fact that it was proven to be a forgery. Uh, the, the, it's not like the medieval popes were constantly referring to the donation of Constantine when making their claims. Uh, it, it, it wasn't important in that way. It's not like the... the, the donation of Constantine itself is the sole foundation of papal authority in the Middle Ages. The only reason the donation of Constantine is seen as being important is because Lorenzo Valla in the early modern period is able to go back and say, oh, well, actually, this <laughs> it's not real. Uh, and that's the only reason why modern scholars know or care about the donation of Constantine and, and the pseudo-Isidore more generally. Um, the, um, it's one of those things. It's kind of like the Magna Carta. The Magna Carta wasn't important at the time. It just wasn't. The Magna Carta only became important in the modern period when people started caring about those types of issues in a different way. And uh, so it, it's the same way with the donation of Constantine. It, it becomes much more important in the context of early modern polemics, I would say, than it was at the time. 
How were the popes elected before the College of Cardinals was established during, during the Middle Ages? Okay, that, it, it definitely, it varied a lot. It varied a lot. In late antiquity, of course, the popes were elected the same way all other bishops were elected, uh, which was there was, generally speaking, some kind of committee. Um, it, it was often a combined clerical and lay committee. You would have bishops of surrounding dioceses, the Diocese of Porto, the Diocese of Ostia. You know, various um, local bishops in the region were on the committee, um, clerics from the Diocese of Rome, uh, important lay people from the Diocese of Rome, depending on the situation, could be involved in the election. Uh, so that's kind of the late antique model. It changes throughout the early Middle Ages in, as the Byzantine emperors sometimes try to assert more direct control over the choice of a candidate. Uh, then eventually what happens is uh, the different Roman families in the 9th and 10th centuries begin to kind of battle w within the existing framework for influence over choice of papal candidates. And it doesn't always result in the most qualified candidates. Uh, being chosen. So then what happens is the German emperors become involved, right? The, the salient emperors become very interested in the middle of the 11th century in uh, the choice of a pope. And then what happens is once Cluny and, and the whole reform movement becomes influential, uh, it leads to the creation of the College of Cardinals, which is 1059. Uh, so in 1059 at one of those synods, one of those synods in, in Rome, you have the College of Cardinals established as a body that actually has the authority to elect the pope. Um, and then the, the role of the College of Cardinals in the church, of course, evolves dramatically in the 14th century. The College of Cardinals becomes a much more powerful body in the 14th century as they try to move to a kind of oligarchic model as papal authority enters a sort of decline in prestige. The Muslim religion is strongly uh, against graven images, and I was wondering if that had the fact that it was on the rise in the 6 and 700s was what caused Mm -hmm. part of or somehow influenced the uh, iconoclasm that happened? Yeah, oh, that, that's, a, that's a great question. That, that's one of the oldest theories about the origins of iconoclasm because iconoclasm is it's such a weird thing. It's such an obscure thing. It, it, it's a situation where an emperor out of whole cloth invents a theological controversy that didn't exist <laughs> before, right? And so it's, it, it's a weird thing. A lot of people have tried to account for it by saying it was proximity to Islam that influenced Leo III. Th there's there's problems with that insofar as Christian thinkers within the Islamic world at the time were some of the harshest critics of iconoclasm. I mean, you have a, a, an 8th century figure like St. John of Damascus, who obviously lived in Damascus, which was the capital of the Umayyad Caliphate. Uh, he lived in Damascus. He worked for the Umayyad Caliphate. His family had a tradition of um, being basically employees of the Umayyad Khalifs, Khulafa. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But uh, in any event, John of Damascus, living in this, this very strongly Islamic milieu as a Christian, a member of uh, a Christian family, uh, is one of the most eloquent defenders of the veneration of icons. In fact, the quint quintessential defender, the defender of the veneration of icons par excellence in the Eastern Orthodox world is St. John of Damascus. So the fact that you have these strong defenses of icon veneration coming from within the actual Islamic world uh, it, it's cause for pause if we're going to assert in some kind of a facile way that Islam was responsible for the advent of iconoclasm. I, I think a better place to look is the way in which Leo III read the Old Testament as he was preparing his revision of Roman law. Leo III's revision of Roman law was, in his mind, sort of the crowning achievement of his reign. And, and as we said, it, it was revised in such a way as to conform to Old Testament practices in many respects. And I'm thinking that's, that's a more likely source of his suspicion of icon veneration.
do I remember correctly that there was a time when popes did not have to be religious or priests? And if so, uh, is that true in this period? Uh, there's, one has to answer that carefully. Um, to be a religious uh, in the Western in Western terminology, generally means uh, to be to have taken the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience to, to be a member of a religious order. Uh, there's never been a requirement that a pope be a member of a monastic order or an order of friars or canons regular, a religious order in the strict sense. Um, there's never been that requirement. But of course, the pope is always a bishop uh, because he has to be the bishop of Rome. That's what makes him the pope is being the bishop of Rome. So uh, there is certainly there are certainly many examples when men were elected to the papacy who were not bishops, and in some cases men who were not priests, but they had to be ordained right away in order to take office. So holding the office of papacy, of course, requires you to be a bishop because it's, it's an Episcopal office first and foremost. Does that make sense? Was there any reaction in the East to the crowning of Charlemagne? Yes. Oh, definite reaction. Oh, man. Uh, okay, look at it this way. The, the crowning of Charlemagne occurs in the year 800. It's Christmas Day of the year 800, easiest day to remember. And it occurs that day for a reason. It occurs in the year 800 for a reason. It occurs then because the popes are able to assert that there is a vacancy on the Byzantine throne due to the fact that the empress, Irene, had imprisoned and blinded her son, right, and that her poor son had then died from his, from his injuries. Right. Now, because of this action, the, not only the Pope, but also other elites in the West are able to assert that there's a vacancy on the Byzantine throne, therefore there is no Roman emperor, therefore Charlemagne can be crowned as Roman emperor. And right away you have a backlash from the East, because, of course, he's taking the title emperor of the Romans. There, you can't have two different emperors of the Romans. You know, the, there's one empire, one emperor, right? And so the, the backlash is tremendous. Eventually, right, Charlemagne, Charlemagne's di diplomacy was somewhat effective in this respect. Charlemagne wins, after the death of Irene, after Irene was succeeded by the emperor Michael, uh, Charlemagne wins recognition as emperor, right? But they don't like calling him Roman emperor. So they'll call him emperor, but they don't like calling him emperor of the Romans or Roman emperor. And, and he's somewhat content with that. So there's, there's sort of this pragmatic toleration uh, of the, the titular claims of Charlemagne that eventually sets in in the East, but they're never very comfortable with it. Thank you very much, Brendan. I know as, as, uh, as Mr. McGuire here was speaking about the Crusades, you guys were, you, give me more, give me more. Well, uh, you, you missed it because I think about a year ago he gave a three-part series on the Crusades. Well, maybe a year and a half ago for us now. And those, uh, that three-part series is posted online. The whole thing is online for free download, so you can go there and listen to it. It's excellent. Um, and, of course, all of our programs are posted there for free download, so uh, it's a great resource. I encourage you to go there and listen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.